everyone. Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. I'm your host, James Huang. It's the week of February 21st, 2022. We have all of our usual cast of characters with us on the show today. How are you doing, Kaylee? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm currently, well, I'll stop while we make the podcast here, but I was editing a story on Major Taylor's track bike. We have a bike check on Major Taylor's track bike from 1903. It's really mm. cool. Mm. That's what I'm How about to. that? Yeah. We seem to be doing a fair bit of vintage things because I, I just published an article on a 1993 Bruce Gordon custom titanium rock and road gravel bike from 1993 before gravel bikes were a thing. Also joining us is pro mechanic Zach Edwards here at the Boulder Group Pedo. Zach, I feel like every time I come in here, I can't help but notice how many bikes are on the wall and how it is still February. There's a lot of snow on the ground. Yep. Why? Do you, do you take, don't you take any time off over the winter? I mean, I was hoping for a bit of a break, but seems like people keep riding and keep breaking their bikes. So here I am. And I guess, you know, hard to complain about business coming in considering you're a independent proprietor or sole proprietorship of this little establishment here. Yeah. Hard to complain about being busy. Hmm. Okay. I was hanging out with Ruth over the weekend and Ruth is determined to make Zach take, take a long vacation at some point this year <laughs> interesting there was there was talk of new zealand i believe what if, if they're letting people in there now uh maybe around the world championships anyway i don't know if this is a top secret thing but mm. it's not top secret <laughs> no zach if you uh if you stop on by sydney on your way to new zealand you can pick up some tools and keep yourself busy while you're in new zealand perfect <laughs> <laughs> and that voice you just heard is Dave Rome joining us from his home office in Sydney, Australia. Hello. I think we should we, I think we should all give Dave a hearty round of applause here from wherever you happen to be listening. Because, well, let's just say Dave isn't quite feeling 100% today. But mm. he's with us here anyway. Mm. Dave, how, how long do you think we're going to have you today on this episode before you need to take a nap? I don't know. We'll see how we go. We'll see how we go. It's, uh, okay. All right. Yeah, we'll see. I'm talk, managing we'll right now. now. Yeah. Okay. Right. He's well, got the vid. <laughs> it's it's yeah. coming for all of us eventually it's a good thing we do this uh podcast remote we'll <laughs> put it that way yeah uh for I anyone mean, I, listening i've got a hepa filter on my mic so you're safe <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, uh. all right well it has been a pretty quiet couple of weeks in the world of bike tech so we actually don't have a ton of news to discuss today but there are a few good little nuggets to go over. We've got Roval and Specialized apparently going back to tubeless on the road after being all gung-ho on tubeless and then telling people not to go tubeless and now they're back again. Uh, we, we have yet another SRAM conversion kit from the 3D printing wizards at Ratio Technology in the UK. We also have confirmation that Shimano made a crap ton of money last year. And then as always, we will wrap up with a bunch of ask a mechanic questions. Let's go ahead and dive in. All right, so first up, these mysterious Roval wheels and specialized tires. Zach, you were actually the one to spot these. What'd you see? Uh, well, at first I saw that they were just running a different tire. It was still tan, but not normal turbo cotton tan. And then Ronan zoomed the picture in and saw tubeless valves as well. Which is interesting, considering that the wheels that they were riding supposedly were not supposed to be run tubeless. Yep. Hmm. But it was in the race that was on the dirt in Spain, so... Not normal road racing. The Spanish Strada? Yeah, whatever that, the real name for that is called. The real name is much harder for me to remember. That one. Spanish Strada. We'll go with that. I mean, to me, it makes sense because they, I don't think that there's anything wrong with racing on clinchers. But Classica High Empresa Interior. Oh, ho. that's the race. <laughs> yes, that. <laughs> but they failed absolutely miserably at Roubaix. So I think this is just getting equipment sorted before the classics come. Right, because I dare say they're not going to run clinches with tubes again. No. No. Particularly if it's wet and you can't see the holes that you're smashing into. Yeah. All right, so we we did not have... So we contacted Roval and Specialized. They're, they're the same people, as it turns out. Um, And they did... Though they really didn't confirm anything, but we can certainly tell from pictures that it is a different tire than what they usually have been running. And as always, if you are trying to determine if someone's running tubes in a clincher tire or tubeless, usually the giveaway is the nut on the valve stem. And these wheels most certainly had uh, nuts on the valve stem. So we're going to run on the assumption that they are actually running tubeless here. So anyway, just to, to back up a little bit, um, they were running these Roval Rapides, which 
When they were launched, Dave, as you so astutely pointed out, they very much looked to be tubeless compatible, but Roval was very, very keen to emphasize that they were not actually tubeless compatible, which led to all sorts of crazy speculation. There was there was a very much a, an afterthought sticker added to the rim tape of the wheels to yes. say, not tubeless. Right. May, they may as well have just like crossed out tubeless with a Sharpie. Yeah. Yeah. It was like it was like in uh, the stickers they put on an Apple, for example, yeah. from your, <laughs> yeah. from your yeah. local shop. So, um, so, yeah. So they looked, the wheels looked tubeless. They clearly were designed to be tubeless, but they weren't officially tubeless. Yeah. Which barring, well, because they haven't released any information explaining why this was the case. We have come to understand, I think we've settled on the idea that there was something structural that led these to not be okay to be run tubeless. Yeah. So, so the marketing department at Roval, um, and they've been pretty consistent with this messaging, which is the wheels, uh, it allowed them to make the rim lighter, the whole combination of a wheel system lighter, and that clincher as a whole uh, once you factor in weight, it was a higher performing system than compromising it to be tubeless. That was their re- that was their official that was the official line public line. But yes, James. So I guess the question now, however, is so I guess there's two possibilities here. One being that the wheel hasn't changed at all, and they are just running them tubeless now for for the team, which seems unlikely because if there was going to be an issue that was structural it's probably most likely that the team would, well, it's probably more likely that the team would reveal that than just some sort of average amateur. Yeah. Which would also be bad considering that failure would probably happen on TV. Which there are, and there are average amateurs using these wheels tubeless, I should say. Yes, mention. most yeah. certainly. Um, so that possibility is seems pretty unlikely to me, um, which leads to the more likely possibility that something is different on these wheels. What do we think has changed then? Uh, realistically, all they'd need to change is the layout because my understanding with it, and I, I did an article about this, about what causes um, like tension drop in the spokes when you inflate a tire tubeless. The main thing uh, that you speak to anyone over is it's um, uh, tubeless has like a, a larger volume of air pressing against the rim, which causes rim compression. Uh, so yeah, all they'd need to do is just reinforce the rim slightly with a thicker layout and you would create a stiffer structure that would hold together and not compress smaller. So what about what about this possibility though? So the the structure of that front rim in particular is pretty unusual because mm-hmm. that rim is very very wide externally mm-hmm. as compared to the internal rim width and and the way that that rim has been constructed is that bead area has basically been like this thin walled this this thin walled cavity. Yeah. Um, whereas, whereas a typical bead hook area on a carbon rim is like this pretty thick carbon thing. So uh, they have already said before that they didn't want to fill that in with carbon because they said it'd be too heavy. Uh, it might also make the wheel ride kind of crummy. Is it possible maybe that they've used some like expanding f- structural foam stuff, kind of like what Hunt has used? I think I think Hunt has a patent on that. So I they believe. Do. Yeah. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> I believe so. Like the the current Rapide uh, CLX that you can buy on the market doesn't have anything in there. It's just a hollow hollow structure, and it's the material is very thin there. Like you can feel the carbon. You know, you can squeeze it, but you don't want to squeeze it too much. Uh, it's a very very lightweight rim. Like it's that wheel set is two hundred grams lighter than Hunt's equivalently wide uh, limitless forty eight wheel. How does Hunt have a patent on this? Zip was filling their rims with foam 20 years ago. Well, but Zip was doing is they, they were filling kind of like almost the entire rim. And that's this, this is what other companies have done as well, like a, like Karima. Yeah. Um, what Hunt has done, they they have foam only in the bead hook area. And the rest of the rim is still hollow as usual. So the rim supposedly just doesn't end up as heavy. Like they're only reinforcing the kind of that big space in between the internal and external width of the tire bead. Yeah. And I think the patent applies to disc brake use only. Like it was a really a disc brake specific design where the where normally the the sidewall for braking surface would be structural that hunt basically are outlining that you can use a, a structural foam and that's in that position. Interesting. So either way, it seems plausible, it seems likely that this these new rims, like these probably are new wheels, they probably are reinforced in some way that makes them okay to use with tubeless, right? That's what we're guessing. Mm-hmm. Can, we, can we just reiterate that none of this was planned? <laughs> and, and as a sort of weird 
it's it's a bit awkward now after the uh, explanation that Specialized Roval gave us previously that clinchers were the way forward and the fastest possible thing to uh, now go backwards on that a year later. No, they like they were pretty clear because I like I cover this in quite a bit of detail. They were pretty clear that they believed at that time clinchers again public facing statement. They believed uh, clinchers were the the fastest combination at that time, but they're continuing their investment in tubeless. I mean, even because if, they believed in the technology, even if the clinchers are faster, like getting a flat tire is very much slower than saving yep. a little bit of weight or rolling resistance. So in a race like yep. this or the classics, then it makes sense to have have tubeless. All right. Well, I, I guess I guess the core issue here is like I, again, as I said earlier, we have speculated that there's some we've speculated that there has been some sort of structural issue that kept. Roval from marketing these as tubeless. Have we really discussed a whole lot as to what that structural issue could be? Because to me, what seems somewhat obvious is like, like okay, you're running it, you're running a tube type clincher, right? You hit something, you get a pinch flat, right? All the air just kind of like goes out, you're done. If you hit something really hard on a tubeless carbon wheel and it doesn't break the seal and doesn't pinch the casing, but it breaks the seal between the tire and the rim and all that pressurized air then suddenly goes into the rim. Is that a plausible scenario? Because if that's a plausible scenario, then that's just not, that's not something that's only limited to Roval, right? I feel like the Revolves, they have bleed holes in them on the rims. But I mean, most, most wheels have bleed holes for water. But, but that if, lets but if, air out as well. But would it let air out fast enough? I mean, probably. Like Envy has a different nut to let air out of the valve so their rims don't explode. So I don't know why a bleed hole would be less effective than that. I don't know. But again, like what what would what would cause Roval to not offer these wheels as tubeless? Yeah, I mean for me in my mind I think it's as simple as um just the rim is so insanely light that it's the the spoke tension drop mm. that the rim is shrinking under compression. Okay. Um because those rims like yeah, just to reiterate, those rims are very very, very light. For, for the dimensions given. All right, better question though. How the heck is Roval going to spin this in terms of PR? Because they have done quite a few about faces here now. Well, this is what I was kind of referencing earlier, which is like, like that now they've told us a couple different stories and that's uh, why I'm, I remain convinced that this was not the original intent, that, that I still think that these wheels were supposed to be tubeless and then they oh, discovered something. And and because yeah, now, that, now they've had to, because they've been good wheels. We, we have liked them. We have talked They're about them wicked numerous fast. times. They're wicked fast. But this, this one tubeless issue has, they, like, like you said, they've, they've gone back and forth now a couple different times. And when they first said, I don't know, we're going to, we're going to run these with clinchers. And they, and they gave Dave Rome the, you know, Oh, well, we think this is the fastest setup thing. Like that ran against everything else that they'd been saying for half a decade. Right. Uh, and continued to honestly say about everything other than their own wheels <laughs> all the way through that point. So clearly something happened here and they've and they've solved it, which is a good thing. Like it means that the new ones, the new ones are basically what the original ones probably should have been. I feel like there are going to be a lot of upset customers if they change the wheel. And now all of a sudden they flip. flip yeah. face. And on yeah. all the people that have whether they came on a bike or they bought the wheel separately whether they have the Rapides and the Alpinists, like people are going to be upset that they come out and be like, oh, actually we were wrong. Clinchers aren't fastest. Now we have tubeless and these new ones that we've made a very slight change to make them tubeless, but they look identical. Like Yes and no, because like, I think right now, like a lot of people may know that tubeless has an advantage, a performance advantage, but they still don't want to run it. Right, like a lot of people are still running clinches. So, <laughs> so I think a lot of people that have uh, bought into these wheels or just came with a bike, I don't think are going to be that upset because they're like, oh well, I'm not going to run tubeless anyway. Right. Um. So yeah, I don't know. I could be mistaken on that. I could, you know, potentially people are feeling really hard done by here, but I'd say people that are really invested in this would have known that something was amiss with the excuses and that those wheels were always meant to be tubeless and that it was a last minute thing. And let's be realistic. I think we may have already mentioned this, but people who really wanted those wheels and also wanted to run them tubeless, realistically, they probably ignored the warnings and they are probably running them tubeless already anyway. Or they already swapped to a different wheel set. If you really want to run tubeless, you would have just swapped, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. Like, I would like to think that there's a different layup and a different wheel that is tubeless, but it also really wouldn't surprise me if teams were like, 
you give us these clincher wheels. We don't want to get a flat in these races. So we're going to put tubeless tires on it anyways, and just run it to not get a flat and lose the race because of a flat tire. Yeah. And in all, in all reality, Specialized and Rovell would have the data over what, at what point those wheels in what conditions those wheels are not suitable for tubeless. exactly or it's like probably it's probably pressure related right yeah it's probably at 90 psi those wheels you know start to start to compress or or become you know a problem and they could say maybe too like our specific tire of this model will work fine but to open it up to every model of tire on the market like yep. that's a lot more of a risk as well yeah there's probably some factors there that uh in certain conditions those non-tubeless compatible wheels are tubeless compatible well, either way, I'm sure we will find out soon enough. And my guess is we're going to find out probably within the next few weeks, just given timing. Maybe. I think. Because, mm. like, why wouldn't you want to run that wheel in Flanders, for example? Tubeless. I mean, it's I true. would run the old ones that were tubular. Well, <laughs> yeah. but I just, I just like living on the edge, so I just run clinchers. I'd, just, I'd, oh, be yeah. like, I'd be like, nah, that seemed like it worked great last year. I'm going to do it. Jeez. Yeah, <laughs> I guarantee you Quick Step will not be running the same setup in the I mean, classics this yeah. year. <laughs> Kaylee, Kaylee, you probably like undercook your chicken just a little bit too. Like, just, <laughs> just like to live dangerously, James. Just mm-hmm. want to live dangerously. Mm-hmm. All right, well, we will we It's will only salmonella this. if you get it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we will table this discussion because like, as I said, I'm sure we are going to find out some more about this sooner than later. Next up on the news front, uh, Ratio Technology, a UK company, is at it again with another conversion kit for 11-speed SRAM mechanical double-tap road shifters, uh, this time with a ratchet that makes them compatible with SRAM 12-speed Axis cassettes. So once again, the kit itself is pretty, well, it's not it's not terribly expensive. Uh, it's about 100 bucks. You get a new 12-speed 3D printed stainless steel ratchet, uh, plus some new printed plastic pulleys that are both a little bit narrower and specially shaped to accommodate the larger chain roller diameter of the axis chain. You do have to get an axis compatible cassette chain and crank set or chain rings, maybe even a new free hub body. Uh, but according to ratio, it's still way cheaper and lighter than a complete new axis group set. Plus if you just like SRAM mechanical road shifting and want 12 speed, this is the only way to go. Are we excited about this? No, no, <laughs> I think we've discussed this before and I'm I'm still on the fence as to whether I understand it or not. Like I don't I don't understand why you would own mechanical 11 speed and then spend the money to upgrade it to axis of well yeah, like more expensive gear. more expensive drivetrain parts that are all wearables that you will have to replace. It's not going to shift as well because axis chainrings are smaller and the front derailleur is not designed for small chainrings. It just to me is just completely ridiculous. I understand the ratio for going to Eagle and having yep. that, like that's one thing. But this just, I, I don't understand. And then add in the cost of the Axis cassettes and the fact that the chains run a little bit rougher. Yeah. Um, I'm just, yeah. The, the only, yeah, I mean, Zach and I were discussing this before we started recording. And the only real motivation that I can think of where, I mean, unless someone just wanted kind of the novelty of 12, 12 gears on like a 2x12 two, a two mechanical drivetrain, mm-hmm. the only reason I can really think of functionally is if someone really liked the double tap shifting, which is fine because a lot of us do. Um, they really like the double tap shifting. They wanted to stick with the mechanical setup and they really want the extra range that you can get with an axis setup as compared to 11 speed. When you toss that into the equation, then that I think, I think there's probably a little bit more of an argument to be made there. Yeah. But even then, I guess you do still have the issue of those front chain rings being smaller to go along with that 10 tooth sprocket in the back. And I don't know how well that's going to shift. Yeah, the the other I guess uh, scenario is if you had an Axis twelve speed bike already and you wanted to say swap wheels between the bikes, or you wanted just to only have to have one spare chain in your in your garage, then that would be the other scenario. But uh, I don't know. For me, that's still not enough of a reason. But um, no, it's just I don't understand. I'm well, sure so, somebody out there wants it. But right, right. Like, okay. Well, one thing that Ratio did mention because I did ask them about cross compatibility uh, cross compatibility between. Uh, 12-speed SRAM and 12-speed Shimano um, because that to me is a much more interesting prospect um, if you were able to run a 12-speed Shimano cassette uh, because then at that point you, you, you would sort of just require somewhat fewer parts. Um, mm-hmm. and there, to me, but I that, feel like there'd be a little I, bit more advantage still, there. Like your, your whole argument for going 12-speed is you get more range. This no, no, you're no, not, not getting more not, range. No, no, not, not always. But you're not getting more range and you could already take your 11-speed SRAM stuff and put 11-speed Shimano stuff on it if you want to shift slightly smoother and 
more crisp and everything. So I don't, this is still like, I don't understand why you would do this. Like just swap everything out because you want to buy new chain and cassette and cranks and chain rings and all of the stuff to turn your 11 speed bike that SRAM into a 12 speed Shimano drivetrain with SRAM shifters. Well, if like, I don't like mechanical, I don't like mechanical Shimano shifters, for example, because I don't want my brake lever moving all over the place. I hate that. Like I've never, I've never liked it. And but what's wrong with 11 cogs? Well, it's one less than 12, Zach. Uh, I don't know. One less. What's like I just worked today. <laughs> today I just worked on a 10 speed SRAM road bike Yeah, and it's been ages since I've worked on a 10 speed bike and this stuff is old and beat and haggard and Works it great. shifts so phenomenally well. Works great. Like it's so much better than any 12 speed stuff that's out there. And I just don't understand why, other than just to make it a bigger number, why we want 12. Because that way I can run my 1132 and have more gears in between. I mean, that's basically <laughs> all it is, right? I mean, we are we are talking about marginal differences, for yeah. sure. Kaylee's sarcasm is actually spot on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you, but you, I mean, but you, this this argument has been super old. You, you, you know, you, you could say this about 9 to 10, 10 to 11, yeah. so on and so forth. Um, Give me but six. I mean, I think ultimately, I don't, I don't know if this is really going, I don't know if this is really going to be the sort of situation where someone has an 11 speed complete working bike right now that they're already riding and they're going to spend a ton of money to switch to 12. I don't, I don't know about that. I mean, but I do think it is interesting if you are say building up another bike and you specifically want SRAM style mechanical shifting, but you want to go with current 12 speed stuff then at that point, it becomes a little bit more interesting if you have, say, a Shimano-compatible setup, I think, because then you do still have kind of the standard chain and all the other stuff. You do get the benefit of the additional ratio in between whatever range cassette you want to run. Um, and then at that point, it also would end up being really light. I mean, to me, I mean, I guess obviously I'm already kind of negative against it, but to me it feels like wait, wait, the wait, questions... Wait, wait. What? Zach, you're negative? I know. <laughs> I'm positive about a lot of things. Zach and I, Zach and I sometimes play Call of Duty together on the Xbox, and Zach's, <laughs> Zach's, whatever name is, is Old Grumpy Hater, and it's so perfect. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That, that is so appropriate. <laughs> it wasn't me that came up with it. I it was, it was a group, think, it was a group know, chat. You were dubbed that. Yeah. <laughs> old Grumpy Hater. That's so but, perfect. So what I was going to say is like, <laughs> this stuff reminds me of do the questions that people used to write in develop news to Leonard Zinn and be like, still I do. have still do. I have campy shifters. <laughs> I have a Shimano cassette and a SRAM derailleur. How can I put these all together on one bicycle and make it work? Like that's what this feels like to me is you're just taking a parts box, parts <laughs> box of random bits and trying to make it function. And it's never going to be good. It doesn't make any sense, but what if but somebody wants it? What if I'm in college and I have $12 to my name? And a bunch of random parts in a box. Then you don't have leftover Axis 12-speed cassettes <laughs> lying around. You don't know me, Zach. You don't know me. Maybe I do. No, I think it's stupid. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's stupid. I think it's a very limited use case. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's not stupid. If you if you do happen to have those parts and you happen to want that, it makes sense. Like I said, I would, I would be kind of into Shimano 12-speed with ETAP. Or not ETAP with with double tap shifters. Like I would I would kind of like that. I'm not sure I would go through the time and expense to make it happen. But if that was just like an option, I'd be like, yeah, sweet. Because I don't like the stupid movable brake lever, shift lever on Shimano Mechanical. And I like double tap a lot more. But I like Shimano cassettes and chains. So so Kaylee and Dave, let me ask you this specifically. And I, I, with the understanding that this is something that ratio still doesn't actually offer, but they've said that they're just planning to. So if you were just a- ignoring availability and cost and whatever, let's, let's just say you were building up a new bike, knowing that both of you really like SRAM double tap shifting, would it appeal to you to have those shift levers with a 12 speed ratchet and being able to run a Shimano 12 speed cassette and chain and say, like, say you have, uh, what would it be, like an 1134 cassette or whatever, and then a 3450 up front. Like, that would kind of give you everything that you want, right? Like, you don't have any big gaps anywhere. You have a smooth-running drivetrain. Shift quality is really good. You, you have the style of, shift levering that, style of shift lever that you want, and it would be really light. Um, I currently run that combo on my own bike, but with Shimano. Speed. 
levers, 11 speed. Um, it, it would appeal to me, but it's also worth noting that you're narrowing the, uh, I guess, the tolerance range of the system. So like one of the reasons that I love uh, Double Tap is just that it's got like a, it's very robust, right? Like it, it you, you can turn the barrel just to quite a few turns or quite a bit before you actually notice, you know, that you've actually thrown out the shifting to a point that you don't want to ride it. Right. Because you have to pull quite a lot of cable to get the derailleur to move a certain amount. Correct. So it's, it's a very robust system, but by making it 12 speed, you're, you're taking it closer to the edge of not being robust. Um, and it will just be, you know, it'll be more sensitive to, to derail hanger alignment and to cable tension and all that. Um, so to me, it's, I like double tap, but I don't know if I like it that much. Fair enough. I, I'm kind of into it. I, I like. I like. I said. I don't think I would spend the time or money to actually make it happen. But it, it, it's funny to me that that mechanical shifting. Now we're talking about this like like a bunch of us are working on like vintage cars or something where you're like trying to make things you're like trying to make things work but you like have this deep love of the thing that you're working on which you know you know is worse in every measurable way than a modern vehicle and yet you spend hours in your garage tinkering you know underneath the the i don't know 1968 mg midget or something like that to keep it running and i feel i I, honestly i feel like we're gonna this is gonna just be more and more going forward for those of us who just don't want to run electronic drivetrains for whatever reason and yes i have them on lots of different bikes but like on my travel bike i refuse it's gonna feel more and more like we're a bunch of old old grumpy haters (laughs) old grumpy haters (laughs) hanging out we what we need to do is we need to start (laughs) <laughs> mechanical mechanical drivetrain clubs like there are car clubs all over the country where we all we all we all join up and we hang out in a Kmart parking lot and we just wander around and we look at each other's mechanical drivetrains and like feel them and polish them and I, this is the future I can't wait hmm. okay <laughs> all right well a dis a disc brakes allowed no 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 no, no, no. Oh, get out of okay. here with your yeah. disc brakes <laughs> no. all right well. Be, before we actually really turn into a bunch of old grumpy hitters, we're going we're gonna to move on from this one. But speaking of Shimano, speaking of Shimano, or I guess speaking of SRAM and Shimano, um, so we, we recently had SRAM CEO Ken Lausberg on the Nerd Alert podcast a few episodes ago. And at the time, he hinted that SRAM was seeing anywhere from 50 to 100% increases in revenue year on year based, year on, year based on basically the whole COVID bump that we've been seeing. Um, and he also said that it would have been even more had they had they been able to produce and ship more product. So what about Shimano, though? Because we didn't have really much info from them. Uh, well, they just released their financial info and their 2021 bike component sales were up 49% year on year. Income was up 83%. In dollars, that adds up to 3.85 billion US dollars in revenue and about $1.1 billion US in profit. So yeah, Shimano did pretty well last year. Um, but we talked during the show also a couple of weeks ago that there were some suggestions. Um, this is something that Rick Vosper wrote in, uh, specifically in Bicycle Retailer recently. Um, but he had some suggestions that supply and demand were starting to come back into balance. Uh, so signaling some relief at the end of the tunnel or some light at the end of the tunnel here as far as the, the, the shortage of stuff. Um, but uh, in Shimano's statement, they actually basically confirmed this. So this is kind of a long quote, so, so bear with me here. So, quote, demand for mid to high-end bicycles remained at high levels due to the global cycling boom triggered by the spread of COVID-19, but some markets began to settle down in the second half of fiscal year 2021. In the European market, high demand for bicycles and bicycle-related products continued, backed by government policies to promote bicycles in response to growing environmental awareness. Market inventories of completed bicycles remained at low levels despite signs of improvement. In the North American market, while demand for bicycles continued to be high, market inventories centering around entry-class bicycles began to approach appropriate levels. Uh, In the Asian and South and Central American markets, the cycling boom showed signs of cooling off in the second half of fiscal year 2021, and market inventories of mainstay entry-class bicycles uh, reached appropriate levels. Finally, in the Japanese market, despite inventory shortages of new high-end road bikes and the entry-class road bikes with high demand, Retail sales of community bicycles stagnated, resulting in market inventories slightly higher than appropriate levels, unquote. Interesting. So this is actually happening here. 
My question here is, uh, I mean, it's unclear exactly how much longer it's going to be until sort of this real this balance really takes hold. But with so many levels of the of the production chain still going full steam and people ordering stuff like crazy, what are the chances that we end up in a situation where dealers and, and distributors and like online retailers and whatever? What are we? What are the chances that all those people end up sitting at a whole bunch of additional inventory that they can't sell now, and everything starts getting discounted again? Uh, I don't think it'll happen this year, but in future, yes, I think it's very likely. Yeah, I mean, I think the chances of the forecasting being able to keep up with the boom and bust are low, right? Just just as just as it was impossible to 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 know exactly what was going to happen when the when COVID first hit. We didn't know that we were going to get this big boom tracking that or, or predicting when that boom is going to happen exactly when that's going to happen and how big it's going to be, which would be required to not have surplus at some point is almost impossible. Right. So, yeah, I think it's it's inevitable that whenever the bubble bursts, there's going to be some leftover bits floating around and some and some discounted stuff. You know, if I'm if I'm shopping for a bike right now, I wouldn't hold off on buying to wait for that. <laughs> I think it's still but a fair I, ways down the road, but, but it, it is, it feels inevitable to me that that's, that's, that's how this ends. And then that's how we get back to some sort of homeostasis. Right. But unless I'm really desperate for a certain bike right now, I probably wouldn't necessarily go out of my way to pay more than I should No, right now. If I know if, if I had a reasonable inkling that things were going to, I guess, recorrect sometime, maybe within a year. Yeah, I just I wouldn't be waiting for discounts is what I'm saying. I, I think that, you know, it, yeah, it's too it'll, early. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll self-correct at some point. It'll probably overcorrect and then there will be discounts of some sort. But like, I, yeah, it's not something I would well, th wait this, on. Here's one, one little example of that I stumbled upon uh, on a Facebook group recently. So someone clearly was trying to order a whole bunch of stuff for their shop or something. Uh, and I stumbled upon a listing on, on Facebook where, where someone is now trying to sell 12 SRAM GX 12-speed Eagle shifters. They suddenly have 12 more than they need, which not too long ago, those things would have been as good as gold. 12 isn't very many. Just hold on to them and use them when you need them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, this person clearly ended up with more than they planned on, and like that's just one little example. So if someone had a massive pre-order of like a whole bunch of bikes or something, for example, then I think that's, it seems pretty plausible that a fair number of retailer, retail establishments or distributors or whatever are probably at some point going to end up with a glut of stuff that they don't need. Well, and in, and, and in particular, uh, when this starts to overlap with, with new product cycles, right? Because if we do, you know, if, if you got an order in for something and it's, you want it right now, but you can't get it for eight months, and then 10 months from now, they launch the new version. <laughs> like that's, go that's also going to be a problem for anybody who's running a shop and trying to keep inventory, anybody who's trying to be a distributor. Like, because at some point here, the lead times on getting something are going to be so long that by the time you get it, there's going to be a new one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're there now. And like that, that's, where yeah, we're that's what we're and, already looking and, at. And so it's, it, that's just going to sort of compound that, compound that issue. Like, like I said, it, it will be an issue at some point. I just don't think it's... I was now. looking, just scrolling the other day through one of the, the B2B sites for one of the distributors, and there was a set of wheels that a customer was slightly interested in. The ETA was 2025. <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, that's just like, like I a, hope that's an error, but <laughs> even if you're like... New, new record. Yeah. That's like, got to just be like a don't order these. Just don't. Yeah. We're never going to make still, them. It's <laughs> ridiculous. But, but is that the sort of thing where they're, they're like, well, we can't just type in here, No. So we'll right. put in there 2025. Yeah. That's, that's the Hansino, my shoes cost 15,000 euro type <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 You can get it one. It exists, but you can't buy it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Don't buy it. Yeah. So anyway, I, I mean, this we can, we can kind of go back and forth on a bunch of stuff that we just can't predict and can't guess on. But um, I, I just found that little bit of information about uh, Shimano's sales figures and their little bit of uh, what, what they're seeing on their end to be quite interesting. Mm. Um, on that on that topic, I mean, James, you're kind of kind of alluding to the prices of not overpaying for something now. Um, what are your thoughts? Do we think prices will come backwards, or I mean, my my take is that prices are going to continue to be high, as in like retail prices are not going to drop back down to figures we saw pre-COVID. 
No, definitely. Any, not. Anyone have any thoughts on uh, that? I mean, my, I mean, we've never really seen prices come back. Like you see it every now and then in like little itty bitty things here and there. Um, and e even if you go at face value um, and you know, on on people's words that a lot of these price increases have been to huge, huge jumps in shipping costs. Mm -hmm. When those shipping costs come back, if those shipping costs come back down, which they those probably will, because those are just not those just aren't sustainable. I think mm -hmm. if if buy companies can see that they have been able to sell all this stuff anyway, despite the fact that it's pretty expensive, then I think they are just going to continue yeah. to charge as you, much as they think they can get. Why away would you with. lower the prices when people have been pay, paying a higher price? Like that's so I I don't think that'll change unless we get to a point where there is like a gross gross swing in the other direction where there really is just a massive glut of stuff and nowhere near enough people to buy them. I think that's the only way we'll see any sort of semi-permanent price correction. And even then, it might just be a temporary discount. We'll see. Turns out people like making money. It's as if it's the purpose of business. Weird. Strange. <laughs> hmm. Anyway. Okay. Well, on that happy note, let's move on to Ask a Mechanic. Derailers, bearings, disc brakes, and rim brakes. All right, first question for Ask a Mechanic. This one we actually answered in a recent mailbag column on the site, but it's worth repeating here again. Um, this one comes from Rob Stein. Uh, Rob is wondering, when preparing a brand new chain for a drip-on wax lube, he just picked up a new bottle of squirt, uh, how thoroughly do I need to remove the factory grease? Really can't be bothered to get a jar of mineral spirits and do several flushes to remove the factory goo, but he's gone over it, he's gone over it several times with several baby wipes which seems to have worked for the surface of the chain. He said he gets that you really want to remove the grease from inside the rollers and wherever the baby wipe doesn't reach. Have I done enough? Can I just apply the lube and ride my bike now? Or do I really absolutely have to go the extra mile? Dave, I'm going to leave this to you because it is related to chain wax and you're the yep. chain wax guy. Um, yes. Sorry, Rob. It really does make me laugh. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, basically you need to remove the grease or the, the lube from inside the chain because that's all that actually matters that's what you're trying to lubricate so if you have any oil or grease on there then the wax will not adhere it'll actually kind of repel off of that and you'll just end up with a mess um so yeah you need to degrease that chain if you want to use any kind of uh wax based chain loop and the cleaner you get that chain the more you get it down to bare metal the the better results you'll have so the cleaner running drivetrain you'll have and the the better durability from the system you'll have and the less likely you'll end up with your own old grumpy hater mechanic yelling at you for having such a nasty drivetrain. Yeah, exactly. We're not going to so, let this old grumpy hater thing go, by the fine. way, Zach. It's just so, just, it's just too appropriate. Well, <laughs> usually it's because Kaylee and I play against 12-year-olds on the internet. <laughs> so, <laughs> who are way better than us. Way better. We we get shot a lot uh, on Call of Duty. <laughs> also, just just to be very, uh, just because details matter, uh, hater is spelled H-8-T-E-R. <laughs> Just so everybody has the full. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that makes all the difference. Right. Okay. Next question comes from Velo Club member James Wynn. These are all Velo Club questions, by the way. Uh, James Wynn would like to know, does anyone think acetone will remove the graphics on a new DT Swiss 240 hub? You just got one of their single speed disc hubs. And in order to match the older front one that had the decal removed, he will need to get the new painted on graphics off. James, I am sorry to report. I haven't tried this myself, but I did a fair bit of looking around and several other people have reported that the graphics on the new DT Swiss 240 hubs are permanent. You cannot get them off. Mm, I would I would argue that no graphic is permanent. <laughs> there, there will be there will be a way to get it off. It just depends on how willing you are to uh, damage the anodizing in the process. Right. How much how much of the rest of the hub is going to come off with that? Yeah. Yeah, there's there's ways to remove these things, but I would be careful that you end up you're going to end up probably damaging the the anode around it. So what do we think? Maybe just like a a a, a chunk of black vinyl tape or something. Uh, I know. Um, again, I don't recommend actually doing this because I haven't tried it on this hub. But um, oven cleaner is a is Ooh, is something that dangerous. Cyclo Retro yeah. uses with his but, anodizing mm. removal stuff. Um. The yeah, that's probably that's probably more if you want to take the hub back to being silver. Yeah, than, yeah. 
And and the problem, and I will I speak I can say this from firsthand experience. If you leave the oven cleaner on even just a little bit too long, turns mm-hmm. out it starts eating the aluminum. Oh yeah, you get pitted metal. Yeah, yeah. not so good. Yeah, that's a fine line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Um. Yeah. What do we know? What those graphics? How they are applied? Is it like you a know, water I, graphic? I, or is I don't. It? It's not a water graphic because those are usually pretty easy to get off. Um. But no, I don't know what it is. Okay. Well. Our hammer in chief has to has to depart. I have to go do a meeting. Bye, Kaylee. Okay. Bye, we Kaylee. To, we have to make a meeting over here. All right. <laughs> Bye, everybody. All right. Next question comes from Carl Seacrest. Carl Seacrest, uh, which I think should be a much more straightforward question to answer here. What are our preferred methods for getting cables through an internally routed frame with a focus on an already complete bike? So not building up from a frame only. It sounds like he's trying to run some fresh cables through an already a bike that's already built. I mean, if you're trying to replace a cable, I would not fish the new cable through. I would use like a little plastic tube or something to feed through along the old cable. Cable so liner. The new one mm-hmm. just slides right back in place. But if you've already pulled the old one out, then you're going to have to do some fishing. Yeah. So I guess just to, to, to clarify further. So what Zach is talking about, um, a lot of times these, these come with new frames that have internal cable routing. They'll, they'll be like a really small diameter, little plastic tube that runs through uh, from end to end where a, ca- a cable would go in and where it comes out. Um, even if you don't have something like that, you can oftentimes find some cable liner at a shop somewhere. It just needs to be long enough to go all the way from one one exit point to the next uh, entry point uh, so that you can so that you don't really have to worry about it. But if you run if you run that cable liner around the cable that is still in the frame and run it all the way through and then pull the cable out, then you can just fish that cable through that housing liner and you don't have anything to worry about. You don't have to gut anything. Yeah. So this is specifically for segmented housing uh, yes. frames. So where the, the housing breaks as it goes into the frame normally and then, you know, separates. Not if you've got full length housing running through the frame because that just means you can pull the cable out and push a new one through. Right. So, um, yeah. So if you, if you go on the assumption that uh, our friend Carl here has already pulled the stuff out of out of the bike. What are your preferred methods here? I mean, just put the cable, blind luck. Put the cable back in the bike, and then probably. I mean, it depends on the frame. Some frames are better at this than others, but usually there's an opening at the bottom bracket. You can shine a flashlight in there or something and grab it with a, I don't know, like tweezers or a bent spoke or something, and grab onto it and then pull it out. Usually, pretty easily. Dave. Uh, I know you have multiple. I mean, it depends on the bike, right? Like some bikes are very easy. Other bikes are absolute nightmares. So there's yeah. many ways and tricks and stuff. But um, I, I will rewind a bit. So if you if you're wanting to use the liner method, you haven't pulled the cable out. Um, it's a PTFE liner, and you get the smallest diameter possible, probably a, a 1.1 internal diameter, and then the the smallest external diameter. And you can get these on eBay. You can get them on AliExpress. You can get them basically anywhere where cheap things are sold. Um, otherwise Jaguar also sell them if you'd like to pay bike tax on it. Um, I personally actually recommend one from the craft shop, like silly string. It's, it's like a stretchy kind of hollow colored string and you can actually get it in a diameter that is okay. I will, I will pre, uh, I will say that it, it took me months to find the stuff I was looking for because I was once gifted a piece from a shop that I worked at and took years to replicate what it was and found out that it sold at craft shops. But, um, so yeah, so it's like kids silly string and, uh, yeah, you can basically, because it's stretchy, you can sometimes find it in a diameter that's even smaller than the inner cable, which means it lets you get it through even the, the smallest of holes that some stupid frames have done. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the advice for the, the first method. Um, but going back to your question about tools, um, I'm much the same as Zach, but I have um, uh, kind of like a surgical tool that lets me stick something up into the frame and grab it and pull back out, and I will spend a second to find out what that is called. Don't you like the ice tools one? Is that the one? What's that? Is that the the ice? Don't you have a? Don't you prefer like the ice tools kit or something? What What's your preferred? Um. So so yeah. So you can get internal cable routing toolkits, which are like a kind of a cable with magnets and fittings that let you attach things and pull through. Um, they're great for like routing hoses or, or um, brake housing. Uh, yeah. Housings through the frame, but Most I find the time them they quite just overcomplicate yeah. things. 
They do, and I also find them a complete waste of time for trying to route uh, just bare inner cables through frames because you're at that point you're you're simply relying on running a magnet along the outside of the frame, and there's normally bits of steel in a frame of uh, or magnetic things in a frame that that stop you from doing that, or, or wrinkles or like bond joints and stuff like that, and yeah. Um, so I've never had much joy in using those as their as they show they can be used. Um, and I find it's just quicker to go um, other methods, normally involving a, a flashlight and a way to grab it. Um, I'm still looking for the name of this tool that people are going to bother me about. And a minor amount of cursing and screaming. Mm-hmm. So the tool you want is uh, an alligator forcep, which is, uh, yeah, kind of, you'd probably more often see them in, uh, in surgical environments, but it's basically like this long rod with the handle at one end and then a tiny little like, alligator mouth at the other and it lets you it's small enough that you can kind of stick it through most openings like at the bottom of uh bottom of frames near bottom brackets uh and it's long enough that you can kind of reach halfway through a frame and grab it so uh for me like it's it's amazing for like dropper post routing where you can actually stick it all the way down a seat tube and pull out uh, a piece of uh housing from almost at the bottom bracket and, and pull it through. Um, it's very, very handy tool and they're not very expensive. So there you go. That's the, that's the secret tool. Okay. Good to know. Kaylee just heard us talking about internal cable routing and logged back in for something. I so, couldn't stay away. Yeah. I couldn't stay away. <laughs> wow. yeah. Also the meeting I was supposed to go to got canceled like 90 seconds before it was going to start. So I'm back. I'm, oh. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Kaylee's mm. tip is to drive his bike back here and leave it at your shop. <laughs> I mean, I have seen Kaylee struggle with fishing cables through a frame, and it's quite fun. It's not. <laughs> it's never happened. Uh, Zach's making things up. He's mm. a liar. He's right. a liar. Well, no, I, I just don't do this. Yeah, I think that um, the average home mechanic also not going to be doing this. This is this is one of the this is one of the few things that I will happily pay someone else to do. <laughs> Is fish a cable through something that does not want to be fished through? Yep. Sorry, I, I don't. I don't blame you, Kaylee. Yeah. Uh, on that note, if you break a cable, uh, a gear cable, perhaps, um, don't pull it out if you're not going to fix it yourself. I should say, if you're planning to take a mechanic, and you've just broken a cable, keep it where it is because it'll save you money. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. All right. Well, our next question is still cable routing related. This one comes from Greg Ghana. Um, since they're probably not going away anytime soon, if you were to design a fully hidden cable system for a road bike, how would you design it? What are your must-haves and what current system for hiding the cables is closest to your ideal? Ooh. Uh, Wait, fully, if you have to have fully hidden cables like, through the stem have, and everything? Well, I guess my thing is I wouldn't have lines that go through the handlebar or stem at all. Yeah, um, right. So companies like... Um, like Trek and Orbea, for example, they they both have systems up front where the cabling is fully hidden. Uh, at least it's, it's hidden from the top anyway, but they have channels molded into the bottom of the handlebar and you have like a little cosmetic cover that goes under the bottom yeah. of the stem. Um, Shout out to BMC for that. Yeah, yeah. And I think, although I think BMC's system, they still has, I think those lines still go through the bar though, don't they? But you can, same no, with the Specialized, no. you can uh, use a normal handlebar with it as well. Or you can feed them into the bar. Because the brake hoses, they go underneath the stem and then either into the sides of the handlebar or underneath it like a normal handlebar. Right, right. So that 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 would be my preference first, to, to not have the lines go through the bar or stem. And clearly it is possible and clearly companies have figured out, figured out how to do it well. So that would be my number one thing to do. Uh, and then from there, uh, I mean, if I have to have them completely concealed, I don't know if any of them, any of the systems really are that particularly awesome. There's, I mean, doing it, there's always going to be some sort of compromise. There's not like some magical way to do this that bike companies are missing out on. Like if you want your fork to be easily pulled out and service the bearings, you can't have fully internal cables. Like it's just, you can't have one with the other. So to me, like some companies are doing this better than others, but like if I'm designing a bike, I would just design it with cables externally because it, like personally, that's how I would want it. Yeah, I think some sort of shroud system would be the ideal where you basically run the cables in front of the the bearing system, the headset bearing. Yeah. Um, not through it. So um, Right. Yeah, it, definitely it, not through the upper headset bearing. Yeah, it'd be tough to make this look nice um, and make it look sort of sleek, but that would be the ideal is like... You I know, mean, Cannondale yeah. kind of does that on the Super 6 or the yeah. 
the hoses come out in front of the bearing, but you still can't pull the fork and service the lower bearing because the brake hose goes through it. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and the lower bearing, the UCI rules too. And the lower bearing is the one that usually goes worse first. Isn't that a fairing? The UCI maybe. rules on fairings is very relaxed. Let, let's fair, maybe, maybe we should not have a discussion on uh, sport governing bodies and and uh, fairness in sport given some recent occurrences in in the, uh, in the Olympics. Let's just not go there. Let, yeah, let's just not been great. let's just go ahead and and operate under the premise that the governing bodies of various sports aren't necessarily always primarily concerned with the fairness of sport. Let's just leave that there. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But I guess, yeah, the, the main fundamentally, like what James said, which is not routes it through the handlebar or through the center of the stem. I think that to me, that solves so many of the issues. And then at totally. that point, uh, you know, as long as the steerer isn't compromised in design or in shape, um, at that point, I don't have too much issue with the headset bearings being, um, I guess, yeah, being captured by the by the brake hoses, especially the way everything's going wireless now. I mean, it's it's not such a big deal anymore. Yeah, I think the big thing with me would be being able to change stem length without having to undo the brake hoses. Yeah. Like, that's huge. Because it should not take three hours to add one centimeter of stem length to your bicycle. Right, and that's if you know what you're doing. Yeah. Um, I guess the other thing that I really like, uh, this isn't really something that you can do on on road bikes necessarily because of the way everything has to run around the, the steer area. Um, but on a lot of mount, modern uh, carbon fiber mountain bikes, they have they have internal guide tubes that are molded right into the frame where you you just stick in the, hou- the, the housing or the brake hose and it just magically pops out where it needs to. It doesn't really work on road though. And no, well, like, that's what I'm saying. It you have electronic yeah, and mechanical. Like it does, and so that, that sort of thing is not really something that would translate well to the road. But I mean, I, I would love to see something like that somehow. I'm not really sure how that would work exactly, but it would be great to have something where you can kind of just take the guesswork out of it. There, there are some examples of that now on the road, like um, Bastion with their integrated 3D printed handlebar and stem. Um, they have those guide tubes like printed into the system um, where you poke it in through the handlebar and it comes out the other end of the stem. Um, so these things do exist. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's easier said than done when you're talking about a, an integrated cockpit or or similar. It's, it's quite I a bit I also don't of, think uh, that's necessarily a super key thing. Like on a mountain bike, let's say, you have mechanical shifting, you ride it in the mud, you have to change the shift cable and housing fairly regularly. Right, there's a lot more maintenance Super required. easy to pop the cable in and out. Yeah. On a road bike with hydraulic and electronic, like you're not disassembling your bike all the time. You don't necessarily need to add all this extra weight to have a, like a tube built into the frame. Right. And realistically, as much as we complain about the fully integrated internal cabling and stuff like that, once you get to the point where everything is set up where you want it. Yeah. As Zach said, if you're running hydraulic disc brakes and if you're running electronic shifting in particular, you probably are never going to have to touch that again, arguably for as long as you have the bike. Like even if you have to do a rebleed, you don't need a new hose, all that stuff. So once all that stuff is set up, you're you're done. It's really just more a matter of having an, a good system for your mechanic or for whoever's at the factory assembling the whole thing. Like it's that's that's really who stands to benefit from that sort of thing. And 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 grumpy. I mean, I think these like editors. most of these bikes shouldn't be fully built and assembled on the shop bike shop floor. Like I think it should be a frame, maybe with some parts hanging on it and a wheels. But like you should get a bike fit, and then the bike build should be finished is how these bikes should be. And then most of that never happens. So that's where the issues come. Yeah. I, I think just to rewind a bit, the the idea of using a handlebar and stem that allows you to, that doesn't contain the cables or the brake hoses means that you can actually, when the time comes to replace a headset bearing, you actually don't need to even take the hose nut off the brake hose. You can kind of replace the headset bearing with the hoses intact. So you never have to like trim the hoses. So that, that design idea solves a lot of things. Um, but also just another thought is um, all of these fully internal cabling systems are um, truly horrible and should be burned in a hell of fire <laughs> um, when mechanical shifting is involved. I was I was thinking about not necessarily just more just general horribleness of internal cables. Is The trend now is gravel bikes and mountain bikes to also go this way. Yeah. And I was, the part that I was thinking about is usually when you want to go fast, you're racing. And when you're racing in a mountain bike race or a gravel race, you put this huge rectangle number plate on the front of your <laughs> bike. So whatever 
half a watt you're saving from hiring your cables is completely negated because you have this <laughs> massive number plate on the front of your bicycle. Oh, that's such a good point, Zach. And like, I was just like, this makes no sense to me. It's so stupid. Just aesthetics. Yeah. It's nothing but aesthetics. So stupid. And then when you put a number plate on a bike like that, it's even dumber because there's no brake hoses for it to who attach to. So it just kind of right. What do you zip tie along? And yeah, it's it's just funny. That's a good point. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Well, Greg, those are our thoughts on that. Uh, I guess basically, unfortunately, if we were to, to design it ourselves, we just wouldn't because we just wouldn't do it. <laughs> um, anyway. All right. Uh, next question. This one is much more straightforward. This one comes from Peter Pinkowski. Uh, he's got a question about an old bike. Is it possible to change a rear hub? from a caged ball bearing to a sealed cartridge bearing. The bike is an old mountain bike on quick release 10 by 135 rear hub. Um, my understanding of this question is he is wondering if he can change the hub itself from a loose ball bearing or caged ball bearing to a cartridge bearing. And the short answer of that is no, uh, because hubs are designed for a particular type of bearing system. So even if you were to theoretically take that hub and if there was enough material, if you machined in a bearing seat for a cartridge bearing, you'd still need like an axle and fittings and end caps and all the other stuff. It's just it's just not possible. So the only way you're going to get that is if you get in, put in a new wheel or relace that old rim to a new hub, neither of which probably is very practical for an old bike. Um, you had some other advice on that one, James. Uh, I saw you answer in a Vela Club. Side. I did, I did. So other, other thing is I, I would also question why you want to switch to a sealed cartridge <laughs> bearing in general. Um, so the idea, like the promise of a sealed cartridge bearing is that it's, it's sealed, right? Like you just stick it in there. You never have to do anything with it, but that's, a, that's definitely a fallacy. Like those things are definitely not as well sealed as they are often purported to be. Um, so if you are currently running a hub with caged ball bearings, usually what you can do is, well, you, you ditch the cage. Um, the, the cage is basically just there for ease of assembly at the factory when those hubs are put together. So instead, what I would do is I would pack that area, assuming all the bearing surfaces are in good shape, I would pack that area full of grease, um, take the individual bearing balls, and for a rear hub, it's probably a quarter inch, um, take the individual bearing balls and pack them in that area one by one. You can probably fit in there one additional bearing versus what you have now. Uh, which will improve the load capacity of the rear hub and will probably make it run smoother anyway and put it back together. And then you'll, honestly, you'll be in a better situation, I think, than if you were to just theoretically try and stick a cartridge bearing in there. That, that's where I'm at. But I'm also a big fan of cup and cone bearings. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, if the wheels lasted this long, why, why change not? it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right, next question. Uh, Dave, this one, this is a good one for you. Oh, this yeah. one comes from Stu Stuart Brown. How long does a chain actually last on a one by gravel bike? He said he has less than 500 miles out of a Shimano HG701 chain that he has on his GRX one by bike. And his Park Chain Checker 2 tool is telling him that it's almost time to replace it. He said, uh, or is his maintenance routine simply not protecting his gear enough? So we followed up with Stuart a little bit on this, uh, going back on the Velo Club Slack channel. And his maintenance routine is remarkably rigorous. Like he is really good about taking care of his stuff. Uh, and Dave, I know you were in this conversation. What was your conclusion here? Yeah, so I think like to to answer the first part of the question, which is how long does a chain last? Uh, in the words of Josh Portner, uh, it depends. Um, so there's just too many factors there. It's it it's you know condition dependent. It's loop, chain loop dependent. It's maintenance dependent. Uh, your riding style even impacts. You know what gearing selection you're using. There's just too many factors here. It can be as little as 500 miles or or, or less if the conditions are horrible and you choose a poor chain loop and uh, in some cases it can be as many as 10,000 miles. So um, anyway, it's, uh, but yeah, basically the, the conclusion of this question was uh, I, uh, the, the CCT, CC2 from Park Tool, it's sort of like, um, it's got like a little flappy thing that, that moves the, the pin um, to measure the chain. And in my experience and something I've written about before, that specific chain checker can be bent quite easily if you push too hard on it. Uh, I know some shops that purposely do so to get a sooner reading on oh, chain wear so to sneaky. sell more to sell more chains. Uh, very dodgy, um, but I do not rate that chain checker as a result. Um, and that's basically my advice: was that your chain checker is probably prematurely reading wear, and that turned out to be the case. Mm. So there you go. So, um, yeah. Um, so yeah, so yeah, definitely not all chain wear tools are created equal. Not all chain wear tools are correct. 
And even sometimes the manufacturing tolerances of chainware tools means that uh, just because that chainware tool has a good reputation doesn't mean yours is actually correct. Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of a, a murky world out there. I mean, I would add one by definitely seems to wear chains. I mean, it depends how you ride and where you ride, but one by definitely seems to wear chains out faster. Like I, with SRAM, for example, if you use a SRAM road one uh, road chain that's designed for a double, wears out on one by system way faster than if you were to run their mountain bike eleven speed one by chains like the XX one or an X one. Those seem to to last a lot longer with the the chain line at more extreme angles and everything. It, yeah, that would be my only two cents there. My two cents is ignorance is bliss and you shouldn't check your chain at like 300 miles. <laughs> yeah, just keep riding it, replace it all. <laughs> Dave, I have to ask before before we finish off on this question, what is your preferred chain checker anyway? So I feel like that would be a good piece of advice to give people. Yeah, so I generally, it's, it's not the easiest topic. The, the Park Tool CC 3.2 is great for um, everyone except for 12-speed SRAM chain users. Uh, and that's, that's because 12-speed SRAM chains, whether like Axis Mountain Bike Eagle or or the flat top chain, um, they both have roller sizes that are slightly different. Oh, the um, Eagle so ones you, are the same, aren't they? Yeah, Eagle Eagle has a, a, a roller size that is not quite standard in line with every other chain on the market, but it's not quite as big as the flat top chain. So, but yeah, so basically you need a, a chain wear checker for those chains that isolates the roller diameter from the measurement. And that is the Park Tool CC4 off the top of my head or the Pedro's um chainware checker tool they only have one um or uh even shimano's own chainware tool does so uh, i don't like the shimano chainware tool because it only tells you once the chain is worn out it doesn't tell you when you're getting to it being worn uh yeah so that's that's basically the the ones to look for um the one i use most is a kmc digital which is like a little vernier caliper sort of in reverse with little chainware hooks built into it and that tells me when where is approaching I have one. How of those. many? Quite nice. How many chainware <laughs> checker tools do you have? Uh, I've so I have. I, I don't know, but I've given away more than five. That's an estimate. Yeah. Um, I don't. <laughs> put it this way: I've got. I think I've got four in my toolbox drawer, and then I've got another tub somewhere of excess tools, and there must be another three or four in there. Oh um, my goodness. And then there's the ones that I've given away. All right. Okay. Well, yeah. this last question that we have is very straightforward. It's a very simple one for us to end on. This one comes from Ang Ha, who would like to know. So we've been talking an awful lot about gravel uh, foam tire inserts. And uh, Ang is asking, is uh, wondering if Cushcore foam tire inserts are compatible with hookless rims. So uh, it's a pretty reasonable question, I think. Actually, it's one that I hadn't really thought of. So I confirmed this with Kushcore directly. And the answer that I got was, quote, 100%, unquote. So there you go. 100% yes or 100%? 100% yes. 100% yes. 100% yes. So, so this, I think this question... dead. Yeah. Uh, so I think this question actually stemmed from the fact that there are actually some hookless rims on the market that specifically come with warning stickers saying, do not do this combination. Uh, and I think the Roval control wheel is one example of the of that where once again Roval <laughs> saying things that you don't expect. But um and I I've done it. It's fine. Yeah, and it I can't but see I, any know, reason why it wouldn't be fine, but I contacted Roval and I I take no responsibility for your yeah. soon injuries. Um anyway, I haven't heard back from the company about why that is. Um so yeah, I, I still don't know why brands that are producing hookless wheels may be saying don't use inserts. Uh, it makes no sense to me. So um, proceed. Roval is making their own insert. <laughs> be compatible. <laughs> Maybe. Could be. Mm. Well, speaking of gravel, uh, speaking of foam gravel tire inserts, uh, we did just publish a video on the Cycling Tips YouTube channel. I was talking a whole lot about gravel foam tire inserts, including some wonderful snow, uh, including some wonderful slow mo footage. Uh, so uh, if you're at your computer right now, make sure you head over to the Cycling Tips YouTube channel to go check that out. Make sure you subscribe to, that, to make sure you subscribe to that YouTube channel, by the way. Uh, and well, with that, that'll do it for this week's episode of Nerd Alert. Thank you for listening. As always, if you have not already subscribed to this podcast, definitely do so. 
Uh, you may have noticed that we didn't run any ads on this episode, and it's because we never run any ads on Nerd Alert, and that is our choice. It's not because people haven't been asking. Uh, so if you want to continue listening to Nerd Alert, please tell your friends about the show. Please leave us a, a good rating and positive review on iTunes because that is also very helpful. But what is perhaps most helpful is if you become a Cycling Tips Velo Club member because that really does directly fund our production of the Nerd Alert show because it turns out Zach doesn't work for free and neither does the rest, neither do the rest of us. I'm just glad you guys invited me back. I really don't add a lot to this podcast, but I appreciate being here and I really like it. Well, I guess uh, until we get enough, until we get enough complaints about you, Kaylee, then we're just going to keep, we're, we're just going to keep you on the show for now. I mean, soon we'll have more race bike stuff to talk about. That's Kaylee's true. better about that stuff. That's true. He is. Yeah. He is. Yeah. It's not that I don't know anything. It's that relative to you guys, I don't know anything. You know so different things. I just hang out over here. You give the real world user feedback. <laughs> that, that's that's what I am. Yeah. I'm a stand in for all the people out there that are like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, for more real world user feedback, make sure you check out future episodes of Nerd Alert. We will see you all next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.